This is Jerry Conway, and you're listening to Superior Spider Talk. Now, don't get too close to the edge of that bridge. Welcome to Superior Spider Talk. My name is Dan Gavazdan, and I'm the editor of SuperiorSpiderTalk.com. And I'm Mark Chinacchio, the editor of the Chasing Amazing blog. Thanks for joining us for the 31st episode of Superior Spider Talk. We hope you enjoy this podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between two fans and collectors as we hope to look at the Spider-Man comic universe in a bit of a bigger picture. Yes, and Dan, 31 seems to be a special number in the Spider-Man world these days, and I guess in kind, Superior Spider-Talk has a really special episode lined up for episode 31. Yeah, boy, do uh, we. Yeah, this is one of our Superior Spider-Talk and Amazing Friends episodes, and this friend is pretty amazing. We, we uh, will be speaking with Jerry Conway, the legendary writer who, you know, will describes himself as the man who killed Gwen Stacy, but... Um, has a huge legacy to his name, but we're, we're, this conversation is going to be mostly focused on goblin-related material, uh, especially with Goblin Nation, you know, in full in full tilt right now. But Dan, this is this is an exciting one, so um, you know, I, I hope our, our listeners really enjoy this. Yeah, if you guys uh, want to skip to a specific section or skip right to the interview, you can do so by using your chapter selection arrows on your player. And if you hear this sound. Please check out your iOS device for a link to an article, video, or image to enhance your listening experience. Although I don't know how much better it can get than this awesome interview with Jerry Conway. So I hope you guys really enjoy it, like Mark said. And uh, let's take it away, Jerry. Spider-Man and his amazing friends. Iceman and Firestar. Okay, well, well, Dan and I have a re- really super special guest with us today on Superior Spire Talk. We're we're talking with legendary Marvel writer Jerry Conway, who um, you know had a very historic run on Amazing Spider-Man uh, during the 1970s, and then came back for. Web Spider-Man in uh, the 80s and did a lot of things in between, right, Jerry? Uh, yeah, I was uh, st- still writing comics, but uh, for the uh, determined opposition. You know, right. for... <laughs> the distinguished competition, right? <laughs> that's, that's pretty, yeah, that, I think that's how we used to refer to it. Uh, uh, <laughs> but obviously with, uh, with Goblin Nation in full swing right now, um, we, we thought this was an excellent time to get um jerry uh on superior spire talk because you know jerry uh is responsible for two very iconic green goblin related stories you know one of which uh was was harry osborne becoming the goblin and then there was some other story you did jerry that was 
you know, people kind of call I, yeah. it, they kind of call it, you know, the end of the silver age. So, you know, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, but I put a stake right through it. <laughs> <laughs> um, Not intentionally, but, but, but I guess in retrospect, that's what we do. It's also, it's also an interesting time to have you on with the new movie coming out because it seems as though they're doing your story. It, it appears that way, and, and uh, as I've said to a few other people uh, when we've talked about it, I'm, I'm desperately hoping they will because that way Mark Webb will become the most hated man in comics uh, and not me. So <laughs> because if, if he kills off Gwen Stacy, you know, it'll be great. Uh, I, I, I'll have, be able to wash my hands of it. So <laughs> It's, a, it's a, an elite club of Gwen killers. <laughs> and I got to yeah. tell I was gonna say after the first movie, I thought Emma Stone was the best part of the first movie. So that's, that's she's a, really good. That's she's a double really whammy. <laughs> you know, and what's brilliant about it? I mean, I, I, not to not to denigrate uh, the, the the memory of, of of Gwen Stacy as a character, but I've always contended that that she was somebody who was far more memorable after she was killed off than she would have been if she had stayed around. Uh, she was kind of a, 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 a kind of a white bread, very bland sort of character, in my opinion. That's why I didn't mind killing her off, obviously. Um, <clears throat> but Emma Stone has made her so likable and lovable that I think, you know, audiences are going to be horribly traumatized. <laughs> and I will be personally delighted uh, <laughs> that, that they are. Um, it's it's really a, a tribute to her talent as an actress uh, that she is uh, that she's made that character as interesting uh, as it as it is. Well, it's funny because uh, I was talking to my girlfriend before we came on here, and I said I was talking to you, and I explained to her like you know in kind of terms that she could understand. And she's and I said, oh, the guy who killed off Gwen Stacy, and she's like, oh, that's such an awful thing, like. I love Gwen, you know, and I was trying to explain to her, no, Gwen is like more interesting dead. I understand in your mind she's not. <laughs> right. Well, that's that's going to be fascinating because it, what we have to remember is that the people who know about Gwen Stacy as a character and know her importance uh, in the in the uh, history of Spider-Man and, and to the to the storyline uh you know, Spider-Man is extremely small percentage of the audience for the Spider-Man movies. So you've got sort of a replication uh, in uh, what's happening uh, in these two, in the in the, the these new films, a replication of the events of 1973, 74. You know, where the audience at that time was shocked. You know, and and uh, thrown for complete loop by Gwen's death. And in the same sort of way, that's going to happen to the vast majority of the viewers who go see uh, Amazing Spider-Man, assuming that she does, in fact, die in this this second film. you know, it's going to be huge for them in a way that 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 we can't begin to imagine. It's going to be Luke's father <laughs> all over again. I mean, nowadays, you know, Luke's father—it's a cliche, right? But you know, back in '84, when uh, Return of the Jedi or '82, whenever—not uh, uh, Return of the Jedi, uh, Empire. Uh, Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, it was I think '80 actually. Yeah, it did. Uh, when that came out, I mean, that was just a mind uh, mind-boggling uh, revelation. Um, 
And again, now, you know, 40 years later, 30, 40 years later, you know, it's it's old news. But, you know, for a vast majority of these viewers, it's going to be complete shock. <laughs> I can't do, wait do, to hear the, the reaction. Do you think there's anyone out there that's shocked at Uncle Ben's murder? No, because I think that that contextually is more part of the the the, uh, the mythology of the character. I mean, you you kind of know, I think, if you know anything about Spider-Man, uh, especially if, if you're only familiar with Spider-Man as the cartoons and the, the TV show, I mean, the the, uh, the TV cartoons and the, the first run of, of movies, you know that Spider-Man uh, is uh, formed as a character by the, the fact that he let his uncle in effect, let his uncle die. Um, so that's sort of like seminal to his creation. And it's sort of part of the mythology, like Bruce Wayne's parents are dead, uh, you know, Superman's from another planet, you know, and so on. But, but the Gwen Stacy uh, storyline is an addendum, you know, to that original creation. It shouldn't, it doesn't overshadow it, but it, but it, it adds a, a, uh, uh, an extra person of, of, of horror, you know, to the life of being a superhero, you know, which is that being a superhero isn't about just, uh, the successes, you know, of your, of, 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 of your heroism, but the, the, uh, the tragedies that can, that can occur simply because you're in that life. Uh, and I think that was the first time we really dealt with it in comics. And I think that's why it had such a huge impact. And I think this will be the first time it's really dealt with. Although, to be fair, I guess you could say Batman, uh, the, the second Batman movie with, uh, um, you know, the death of, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the third Batman movie with the death of, uh, which one, which one it was Harvey Dent in? Second one. Second. Yeah. <laughs> Right. With the death of uh, 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 Batman's girlfriend, you know, the, the, who wasn't really as important, I think, in his life, you know, as as, as Gwen Stacy. Um, I think this will be the first time that, that viewers of, of comic book movies have been confronted with that potential reality. And I think that's going to be kind of cool. Yeah. So we'll see. Well, without question, you know, it's funny. I was I was. Before we got into the specific storylines, I was going to lead you with a, uh, a general question. We already started kind of getting into Gwen stuff, but let me let me backtrack a little bit, Joe, sure. for just for people who 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 want to know more about you beyond just the fact that you killed Gwen. Uh, <laughs> yeah, because there is a little more. <laughs> um, now, now you started you you started working on Amazing in your early twenties, right? Yeah, I was. Uh, I think I, I think I was just nineteen, uh, wow. nineteen twenty. Yeah. So, I mean, what was it like for you at that age to not only be, you know, get on Amazing, but but you were essentially Stan's replacement. I mean, like, what, what, what was, what, I mean, what, what was going through your head for, you know, at, you know, especially at such a young age? Yeah, well, the interesting thing is that I, I, I Marvel was such a small company when I when I started working for them. They they were publishing like ten or ten to fifteen titles a month uh, when I came on. Uh, and you really had a very small writing staff. It was uh, I was brought in to back up Roy Thomas, who was backing up Stan, and so that was it. You know, and then we had I think Gary Friedrich and a handful of other freelancers who would, you know, show up for individual fill-in issues. But I guess I was kind of Larry Lieber, you know, <laughs> in a sense. I was the guy who's, who who would come in and do the stories that Stan or Roy couldn't do. 
uh, and I, I, I was aware that there was this possibility that eventually I would move up the ranks. Uh, I think the first title of stands that he gave up that I, I took over was Thor. Uh, I think it was about six months or or maybe a year before uh, I took over Spider-Man. So I was accustomed to the idea that I might get into that role. And I knew that Roy really didn't want to write Spider-Man uh, so that if Stan ever did leave that book, uh, I would be the person who would be likely to take it over. And, and at age 18, 19, 20, your, your sense of uh, your own capacity to do things is pretty enormous. I mean, my self-confidence uh, was untempered by reality. <laughs> I, I think I felt like, yeah, I could do that. You know, it was like, yeah, I could do that. Uh, it was pretty arrogant. But, you know, at, at the same time, in a weird sort of way, I felt very simpatico with uh, Peter Parker. I was the same age theoretically that he was uh, we had a, a similar life background although obviously uh, I didn't I didn't get bitten by a spider and I didn't live with my sick aunt but you know we both we both were kids from Queens you know we both had kind of misfit adolescence uh, we were both uh, young adult men trying to figure out how to uh, combine relationships and uh career in new york city and it was so, so I, I i kind of felt like i knew that guy uh and i really passionately wanted to write him so uh when the time came you know i i just took to it like yeah this is what i'm supposed to do <laughs> and then once you were writing full-time i mean at how much input did did Stanley still have on the books? I mean, was he just kind of really in the background by that point, or Stan, Stan really wanted to hand everything off, and and he did. Uh, he didn't really uh, oversee the material on a on a day to day basis. Roy had more of an an impact, and but even Roy had the philosophy that if you were the if you were the guy that that. Uh, he wanted to do the work. It's because he liked what you did. And so he wasn't going to second guess you. Um, in the first year or so that I worked on the book, I, I collaborated uh, primarily with John Romita, who was the senior partner in the, in the relationship, obviously. Uh, his name even came first, you know, in the credits uh, for my first uh, dozen issues, or half dozen issues, whatever number it was that we worked on together uh, when he was penciling. And he pretty much took me in hand and, and taught me how to plot the books uh, the way that uh, Stan would have plotted them, uh, you know, and, and guided me and kept me from, you know, too much, uh, uh, too, too excessive, you know, a, a use of my own ideas. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, I was gradually uh, given more and more authority and, and more and more, ability to uh to pace the stories and develop the stories myself as time went by there, and, uh, oh sorry go dan <laughs> there there's so much uh talk by like stan the way he kind of sells the bullpen and everything like the marvel office mm -hmm. in the comics like what was the environment like at the time like there i mean like were people actually working in the office or oh sure yeah they, although uh the actual free uh, the the people who wrote well, let me, let me backtrack. 
there was the, the offices were fairly small. When I when I first started working for Marvel, uh, I think we had um, three big rooms uh, on Madison Avenue, um, right over a floor above the uh, uh, the offices of the National Lampoon, actually. Mm. Um, and they were we had. Uh, John Ramita and Herb Trimpey were the two artists who worked every day at the office. Uh, both of them uh, drew there. Uh, Trimpey, I think, just preferred to be there because he didn't didn't want. He also had a, a, a part time relationship as a production artist uh, uh, for for Marvel, so that if there were corrections that needed to be made or you know redrawing that needed to be done on a book. Uh, Herb was one of the people who would do it, so he had to work there. Uh, and then John was there because he was the art director. And again, you know, if, if, a, if a cover design had to be uh, done, he would be the one to do it, so he had to be there. But everybody else uh, worked from home. Uh, we all, you know, wrote uh, our scripts at home. I think Roy would write at the office uh uh, Stan would sometimes write at the office, but they had kind of semi-private offices. The bullpen itself, you know, was was open, uh, so you didn't have. A, if you were an artist, you might be able to work, but if you were a writer, you might have been too noisy. Although I think a Starbucks today is probably noisier than, than that would have been. <laughs> a lot of people write their scripts at Starbucks, so I don't know. Uh, but it was a fairly small operation. You know, when I first started there, it was. Uh, as I say, 10 to 15 titles. So it was not really much of a bullpen. I say, I think, I think Marvel put out 10 to 15 titles this week. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, within about three years, they were up to 50 titles a month and they didn't change their editorial, uh, administrative, uh, stance, uh, until years later. So it was kind of chaotic and crazy. Uh, they just sort of expanded without ever hiring more staff. So it's, it was kind of lunacy. <laughs> now, I, I just wanted to ask, you know, you mentioned John Romita earlier. Now, I mean, and, and if I'm leaving somebody out, I apologize. But in terms of other uh, pencilers you worked on, you know, on your first run on Amazing, there, were, there was Gil Kane and Ross Andrew, right? Those were the, sure. the two other main ones. I mean, was yes. the was the creative process generally the same with each artist, or I mean, you, you know? Uh, no, not not really. I mean, Ramita was, as I say, more of a uh, uh, Ramita and and Ross Andrew were more direct collaborators. Um, Ramita, in particular, I deferred to Ramita because, as I say, he was the senior senior partner in it, and uh, he obviously knew everything much better than I would have known. Uh, so when I was working with John, uh, I would run ideas by, by him. He would take them and, and develop the story, uh, you know, visually. Uh, and I had, I, I don't think I ever wrote a full full length plot form after the first one that I did. Uh, with Gil Kane, Gil, uh, was more, was very inventive visually and, uh, was a good storyteller, but he didn't really, <clears throat> didn't really contribute to plot. Uh, his, his, uh, contributions were in terms of the, the overall design layout and, and storytelling of the, of the, of the, uh, 
the issues that we did together. And because he was kind of known for sometimes pacing things a little bit awkwardly where he would use, like say if you gave, you gave him a three-page plot, he might end up doing the first page over the first 16 pages of a 20-page book and you <laughs> end up with everything crowded into the last four pages. I became very careful with Gil about specifically saying, okay, this is going to take three pages of, of, of pencils, this will take four pages of pencils and so on. So I was more hands-on with Gil about uh, pacing the stories. With Ross Andrew, it was sort of um, uh, it was back to working with someone who was really good at plot and story. Uh, and Ross and I, I, I consider uh, a really uh, a perfect collaboration where, where the two of us uh, were equal partners in developing the stories together, with the, with the exception of a handful of stories that I wrote full script while, uh, while he was uh, uh, penciling the book. He was a terrific storyteller and, and, a, and a great collaborator. And he always had a lot of detail with his mm-hmm. backgrounds, too. I mean, like people, you know, I know a lot of people talk about, like, how he would always work in, like, you know, these real-life buildings and yeah. icons and things yeah. like that. I mean, did, was that just all him all the way? or? Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, I, I, I got to the point where, because I knew that he liked to do that, I would specifically say, we're going to do this one at this location. We, we would talk about locations around the city that, that we found visually interesting and that we wanted to use. So we would find ways to put the goes into the stories. And he actually came to my, I lived up in the west side uh, of Manhattan uh, while we were working together. And he, he would come to my apartment building and take pictures off the roof. <laughs> <laughs> so there's some scenes of uh, that, that spider bed literally were swinging by my apartment building. So it was uh, very cool. Um, we actually got in trouble once because Ross was so, so good about, uh, wanting references for for things we did a story called mindworm uh, about a, a character called the mindworm uh, that's about this kind of mutant kid you know who has this ability to uh do, do telepathic mind control or something and uh ross found this house in in his neighborhood down in howard beach uh queens uh that he thought would be a great house for this guy to be in because it was on this kind of the only house surrounded by vacant lots, and it was kind of eerie and weird. So he used it as a reference. Unfortunately, it was recognizable, and people started, fans, local fans, started going to the house and asking if the mindworm lived there. And we ended up, <laughs> Marvel ended up getting sued by the owners of the house, and they, we had to uh, uh, pay them off, I think. <laughs> so from that point on, we were, we're careful to disguise our references. I, I have not heard that story, Dan. Have you heard that one? No, <laughs> I mean, no. All over the mindworm. That's great. I'm going to say, I, yeah. I, I mean, I know that issue, but I yeah. didn't realize. You there was look a... at it. That house exists. <laughs> really, before it did back in the 1970s. Yeah. Well, Mark, we're going there. Yeah. <laughs> we got to find this house now. Um, Down Howard Beach somewhere. Yeah. Let's say, I have, I have a friend. Well, he used to live in Rockaway, but... Um, he actually has since moved to to Tennessee. He he oh, went wow. he went total total south on us, but um, I'll have to ask him if he knew if he knows that story because he, he might. Sure. Um, <laughs> so, in terms of you know, kind of backtracking again to um, now going back to to Gwen Stacy related <laughs> material, 
Um, yeah, I've I've read you know in certain books or in interviews, you know, there's there's all these accounts in terms of you know when this this decision was made and and who who knew who was on board, whatever. I mean, from from your perspective, when did you know this was going to happen in terms of killing off Gwen? Well, we had been talking about doing something to shake up the book, uh, and John Romita was uh, a prime instigator in wanting to to. Uh, do something dramatic, you know, to, to, to give the book a sense of consequence and, and stakes. Uh, so he felt he, he referred to uh, uh, the Milkaniff storytelling techniques of Steve Canyon and uh, Terry and the Pirates, of where you use it, where you, where you do a story where a beloved character, some beloved character, uh, dies, and that raises the stakes, you know, for everybody. You know, it raises raises the stakes. For the reader, in that the reader now knows that yes, in this universe, bad things can happen, you know, and so therefore I have to pay more attention to those stories. Uh, and for the writers and, and artists, it raises a stakes because it, you know, it gets your juices flowing and, and, and reminds you that you are doing material that, that uh, has consequence. So he wanted to do, do something that would do that. Uh, his vote was to kill off Mary, J- uh, not Mary Jane, uh, uh, Aunt May. Uh, he felt that Aunt May, you know, had outlived her usefulness and the time was ripe for her to, to die. And I, I disagreed with this for a couple of reasons. I mean, my, my, my thought at the time was, uh, and this is less relevant today, but, but at the time, Aunt May was a connection with Peter's uh, reason uh, for being uh, Spider-Man. Uh, she was a, a daily reminder, you know, of that with great power comes great responsibility. She uh, was his connection both to his parents, uh, who had vanished, you know, from his life, and to his uncle, who, uh, you know, is part of his mythic story. So I, I felt she still had value as a character. Uh, and besides which, I always enjoyed the stories in which, you know, she's uh, at death's door or uh, involved in some bizarre storyline that, that puts her in jeopardy. I just like, you know, as a reader, I enjoyed that. Uh, but I had a, I, I had this, this uh, long-term gripe with the book, which was when I had started reading Spider-Man, I, I, I was a writer, reader from like issue two, I think. Uh, and the whole Mary Jane introduction was one of my favorite uh, moments in comic book history. You know, the, the, where, where she's you're, you're teased with her for for several months beforehand, where she's uh, uh, you know uh, held out, you know, as this kind of mysterious figure that uh, Aunt May and her friend uh, Mrs. Watson are trying to set Peter up with, and Peter's. Trying to dodge it desperately, you know, like, oh, my God, you know, I don't want to be a set up with some girl, you know, that's going to end up being a monster in some way. <laughs> and then then the reveal that she was not just cool, but but I mean, not just beautiful, but cool. You know, I mean, she she had that uh, uh, very snappy uh, immediately. You could tell she was going to be Peter's equal, you know, I mean, face a tiger, you've hit the jackpot. I mean, that is a self-confident, uh, uh, funny, uh, boss to the wall type woman. And I, and I loved her. And then she went away. Yeah. I mean, she went away as <laughs> Peter's girlfriend. And I was devastated. I was like, what happened here? 
you know, this is obviously supposed to be his girlfriend. And, and suddenly now this other girl is his girlfriend. And I never understood it. But I, I understood it from a personal point of view because Stanley married, uh, I mean, was and had been married for a long time to a lovely woman named Joan, uh, who is a dead ringer for Gwen Stacy. Uh, <laughs> and his daughter, Joan, Joni Jr., is, is another dead ringer for Gwen Stacy. And Stan was basically fulfilling his own, own wishes, you know, that Peter would end up with uh, a woman just like his wife. Um, but that did not ring true to me. It just did. It, there was nothing about Gwen that said to me, this is Peter's inevitable love interest. Uh, I just, I mean, Emma Stone uh, has made her a interesting character. I mean, think about all the things about her that, that make her interesting. She's witty. She's sharp. She's uh, gorgeous, but also self-confident. She uh, puts Peter down in a way that's, you know, very direct. And she's Mary Jane. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, she is totally Mary Jane. That is Mary Jane. Of course, if Emma Stone had kept her hair color, you know, and they just stayed stayed with casting her like two movies later, you know, she could be Mary Jane. But <laughs> no, they had to do this. So in effect, I felt like they, they had taken a wrong step with Mary, with Gwen Stacy. And this was my chance to set it right. So I suggested let's do Gwen Stacy. And believe me, nobody objected. Yeah. Nobody. Stan was on board. Uh, Roy was on board. Uh, John was like, yeah, that sounds fine. I think it was the manner in which she died and the, you know, the, the fatal snap <laughs> that uh, people later and with justification probably felt was uh, my doing more than their doing. So they wanted to get, get their hands off of it. You know, <laughs> it's like, you know, for, but although now, you know, everybody would like to probably claim credit for it because it's like become so iconic. But at the time, uh, I don't think anybody quite, I mean, certainly Stan didn't know that that's what we, that's how it was done. Uh, Roy, I think noticed it, but probably didn't, it didn't track with him, you know, that that's what we were implying. Uh, I don't even think that uh, I consciously even recognized what it was that I was implying. Uh, I was responding to what Gil had drawn, mm. which, you know, from the angle in which that he had drawn Mary Jane and the, 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 the motion of her body, it was pretty clear that her neck was snapping. So I just added the sound effect. And the shit storm rained <laughs> <laughs> down. Did, so that's did, the that's the backstory. Did you um, suspect that that neck snapping would open up this whole other line of questioning over like whether she was already dead or not? Well, I I wanted to have my cake and eat it too, you know. So I I, I put in the whole reference, you know, the, the, the goblin saying that, you know, she was, she'd be dead on the way down, you know, that, that whole thing, which is all nonsense. I mean, unless he had killed her before he threw her off, a fall doesn't kill you. The, the, the landing hit kills you. Yeah. you know, that's what killed you <laughs> or your, or, or your neck snapping from uh, whiplash kills you. Uh, you know, I, it was a bit of a namby pamby moment on my part, but it was also kind of, traditional in comics uh to try to soften the blow uh and this was this was really a a, a, tr a transitional story 
again, not intentionally. None of us were saying to ourselves, we're going to change the business, you know, and make things more real. It was simply that was the arc that we were on. You know, we were we were moving towards a more realistic uh, portrayal of, of uh, comics. Uh, and uh, you have these artifacts, you know, that sort of hang around from the prior age. And that one of the artifacts was, you know, the, the, the notion that uh, we could escape blame somehow um, by saying she fell and her she died from the rapidity of her fall. <laughs> <laughs> well, kind of jumping off that, um, I, I think it was around um, the time that Amazing Spider-Man 700 had come out and and Dan Slott was getting death threats about what he did to right. Peter and everything. And you had, you had made, and I'm paraphrasing, a comment on Twitter, right, where you were like, if, I, if, if, if Twitter was around when I killed Gwen Stacy, you know, like the, the, the shitstorm would have oh, been gosh. off the charts, right? And, yeah. I mean, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you know, I mean, I guess it's hard to put yourself, but, I mean, if, if that story was done today and had the impact it still had, I mean, would you, would, would you, you know, I mean, you're obviously, you're involved in Twitter, you're on social media. I mean, would you be still willing to, Put yourself out there. <laughs> well, here's, I did not have any idea back in 73 that I was going to be the recipient of as much hatred as I received. In fact, it was so severe. I, I, and this is before uh, you had social media or any of this. I mean, basically, all you had were letters, you know, and, and, and uh, conventions, you know, comic book conventions. And the conventions were small. I mean, three to five hundred to a thousand, two thousand people. That was that was a big convention. Uh, but I was, uh, I was on the receiving end of a lot of hate mail. I mean, probably more hate mail than, uh, uh, I think they'd ever received in Marvel up to that point. Uh, and, and a lot of abuse at conventions. I mean, people just, you know, being really uh, obnoxious and I, I stopped going to conventions and I stopped reading mail. I, I just had to like back off of that. Um, for a long time, I mean, it was a, it was just really impossible to 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 put up with it. So, I think the big difference between now and and seventy three is that uh, today our, our readership is more cynical. I mean, one of my other tweets uh, regarding uh, uh, you know the uh, uh, the Dan Slot story it w- was simply to say uh, so- something to the effect of "Oh my God." You know, they've killed off a major character. <laughs> what, what will happen? You know, will he ever return? <laughs> I, you know, I mean, nowadays, you know, characters get killed off and they're back a year and a half later. And guess what? Uh, you know, that's pretty much been the arc of, of Superior Spider-Man. I had no doubt in my mind that Peter was going to be back. I mean, it was just and I don't think anybody who seriously follows comics had any doubt that Peter would would not be back. Um but when Gwen Stacy died, uh, we were much less cynical about comics. So people took it very, very seriously. And it was uh, – and in fact, she's the only major character I think who's ever been killed off who's never come back with the – you know, if you, if you don't count the clone stories. And honestly, I don't. You know, I mean I count them as stories, but I don't count them as her having come back. Uh, so when she – when she got – was – made dead she was stayed dead (laughs) and that's a big difference between what happens now and i think social media i to partly i i just i'm thunderstruck by 
readers who are who, who take these things as serious disruptions. I'm just like flabbergasted that anybody thought for a minute that Peter Parker is gone forever. <laughs> I mean, how could anybody be that naive, you know? Um, yet that's what we see, you know, and, and, and I mean, remember the big media brouhaha when Superman was killed? Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Superman's dead. Uh, Captain America. Oh my God, he's dead. You know, Ke- oh my God, they killed Kenny. I mean, it's like, <laughs> you know, we can't take this stuff seriously anymore. And I think part of the social media, uh, response of these things is just kind of bewildering to me because I, I don't understand why anybody takes it as other than, hey, that's a cool storyline. You know what I mean? I, I personally, I love the Superior Spider-Man storyline. I thought it was a really interesting way to, to drum up some, some uh, interest in the character and give us a new perspective on Spider-Man and ask some interesting questions about uh, what it means to be a superhero. And all of that was great. But it was also obvious from the get-go that it was going to be a temporary uh, storyline. Uh, if for no other reason than that, there's a million dollar movie coming, guys. You know, right. it's called Amazing Spider Man. <laughs> you know, they're not gonna they're not gonna let that go away. No, I mean, and Dan Dan and I talk about this a lot uh, when we review the issues with, with Superior. I mean, like we 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 both maintain that you know a lot of what's Superior about it. I mean, it's a referendum on what it is to be Spider Man. You know, I mean, like mm-hmm. Peter might be dead quote unquote but i mean he's all over those issues you know like sure. whether it's it's i mean it's he's the measuring stick for how otto does what he does so it's Absolutely. like so even Absolutely. so even if he's not physically there he's still there and and you know it's, yeah it's it's very true i mean and and i think that was what was so great about them too is that they they gave you another perspective on the whole story you know i mean it's 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 there's a little chill you know that goes down your spine when you see certain things that remind you of what how peter would have behaved or or what the repercussions would have been if if peter had done that you know and so on i mean that's just fascinating and i think that was a great a great literary ploy on uh, marvel's part and that dan executed it brilliantly we um have some suspicions that uh they have introduced a character anna maria into the book as Otto's, like, girlfriend in, in the body of Peter. And we have suspicions that she might be getting the axe um, in a similar style as Gwen. And uh, we've had a couple readers, like, write in, and we've been talking about, too, this whole, um, like, women in a fridge concept. That, like, um, <laughs> yeah. What are your feelings, like, you know, as someone who kind of, like, killed the, you know, quintessential, like, you know, uh, you know superhero girlfriend and, and kind of, change the attitude towards that, like about how that stuff is being handled today and like maybe how it's being like read differently. I mean, do you, do you have feelings on that? Well, it's, it is fascinating. I'm, I'm, I, I've always kind of considered myself a feminist, but, but I realized in recent years that my, my, uh, perception of, of women's role, uh, uh, is filtered through, you know, a kind of a, 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 uh, well, I mean, obviously filtered through a, a male perspective, and I have huge blinders, you know, that that I that I'm trying to remove, you know, uh, which are just automatic kind of. Well, yeah, that's the way things are, you know, sort of sort of uh, assumptions. Uh, so yes, I think it's I think it's unfortunate that women are still and and 
supporting characters in general, but women as supporting characters are generally treated as uh, potential victims, you know, rather than as uh, uh, assertive individuals in their own right. I mean, to some degree, inevitably, if you're doing a male centric character, I mean, if your male lead is a, is a character and he has relationships, unless the relationship was a, is with another guy, there's going to be a certain uh, 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 sexual component to it that's 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 going to be there. You know, I mean, he's, he's going to have a girlfriend. Sure. Where he's going to have a wife, where he's going to have a, 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 and inevitably because the story is actually about the lead character, the secondary character is going to be secondary, uh, by definition. You know, <laughs> she's the secondary <laughs> character, and so as a result, you have to really work your work at it to not treat her as an appendage. Uh, you you have to like give her a, uh, uh, and, and I think we I've, we we've. To varying degrees, I as a writer have, have been a failure at this or a success at this, you know, I mean, at different times in my career. But there is a tendency to just automatically put her in the fridge or throw off a building or, you know, uh, tire to the railroad tracks. You know, I mean, something that puts her in a victimized position so that the hero has has some some. Uh, uh, reason for doing, you know, for 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 rushing to the to, to her rescue, and I think it's unfortunate, you know, but it's also kind of integral to the drama of any story where you have a lead character and a supporting character. The supporting character is going to end up needing to be in a subordinate role. Uh, that being said. I think that it's a, it's incumbent upon writers and artists to not treat that subordinate role as automatically uh, a, as a weaker character or as a less uh, uh, developed character, and and to not take the easy out of, of putting them in jeopardy just because that makes for a greater you know a, a stronger suspense for the lead character. Uh, there, there has to be other, you know, there, there has to be a way to sort of tr treat them as equals, you know, is what I would say. Uh, but recognizing that they're ultimately they're not equals because one, one is the protagonist and one is not, um, you know, in a, in a book that's featuring, that's, that's built around a female character, then she should be the, the, the main character and subordinate character will be whoever she's in a relationship with, uh, you know, and, and that person will be in jeopardy, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, you know and, and in Batwoman, it'll be another woman, you know, right. and in, and in uh, Batgirl, it might be a guy. I mean, you know, it, it could be any number of things, uh, but we have to be conscious of not taking the easy out is what I'm saying. Awesome. Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, Jerry, just um, just out of curiosity, I mean, why why was Green Goblin chosen as the guy to to do this? I mean, you know, fans will debate back and forth about you know who is the the arch villain for Spidey, and you know, obviously, you, you know, you read Superior right now, and it would seem that Doc Ock is kind of the guy <laughs> since he since well, he successfully got in, into his skin. <laughs> but I mean, what why? <clears throat> What, I mean, did you know from the get-go if you were going to do this story, like, it had to be Green Goblin? 
Well, it's interesting because, in my view, Green Goblin. I mean, while I, while Art, while Doc Ock and uh, Sandman and Vulture, you know, were all uh, important uh, members of the, the Spider-Man Rose Gallery, uh, Green Goblin, for some reason, always. I guess because, as I say, I read those books from the beginning, and I was fascinated by the by the Goblin uh, storyline uh, when it was originally played out, where you know, you had this mysterious figure, I mean, this, this villain who shows up with, who doesn't seem to have a secret identity. We don't know what a secret identity is. Uh, but there's implications that he's vitally important in Peter's life, uh, that there's a personal connection. And, of course, all of that is retrocon, you know, <laughs> because uh, I, I, I guarantee Stan and Steve, when they created him, didn't have Harry Osborn in mind and, and didn't have Norman Osborn in mind. In fact, they weren't even introduced uh, until after the Goblin came along. But be that as it may, Peter had a personal relationship with Norman Osborn that he didn't have with any of the other villains in his life. So in my mind, the Green Goblin was always Peter's arch enemy. Uh, and if you're going to have, you know, this, this fatal consequence, you know, where uh, his arch enemy, his Joker, basically, uh, kills his girlfriend— and then is himself killed, uh, you want it to be a, a, a character of consequence to him emotionally, in addition to just being, uh, you know, the big bad. You know, he's, he's got to have some emotional connection. And it, it also, it was in my mind that uh, Harry would make a terrific uh, replacement goblin. Uh, and that, you know, you could, I could have my cake and eat it too. I could have a goblin die and I could bring the goblin back and it would make perfect sense structurally and, and, and emotionally. Uh, so it seemed like, you know, it's, it seemed like an inevitability to me at the time. Yeah. So, so you had Harry in mind early yeah. on, it sounds like. Yeah. 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 I have a question of something that's kind of always bothered me. And uh, Mark and I were reviewing the new ways to die uh, storyline last week on the show. And, um, it brought up this back up in my in my head. In in the book, it says that they're uh, at the uh, GW Bridge, but it's clearly <laughs> the Brooklyn Bridge. What is the what is the story behind what the this fuck confusion? Is that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. What is that? What is that? Well, what it, what that was was that in my outline, I referred to it as uh, uh, the GW Bridge, uh, and when he drew it. Uh, Gil Kane drew the Brooklyn Bridge, I believe, or it could be reversed. I'm not sure. It's like it's been so long. Um, and when I wrote the script, I was looking at my outline and I was really not paying that close attention because I was so involved with the emotions of the scene. You know, I wasn't paying that much attention to the place. Uh, so I just referred to it as the the George Washington Bridge or whatever you know whichever one it is because I'm still confused to this yeah, day yeah, exactly. <laughs> so right. so right. it's it's like uh, I, I needed you know I just sort of I, I guess I just wasn't paying close enough attention and it was a a confusion that sort of arrived between the two of us and I think honestly that the the obviously the Brooklyn Bridge is a, a visually a much better choice so Gil made the better choice. Uh, I had wanted the George Washington Bridge just simply because I hadn't seen that part of Manhattan uh, 
in in a comic, you know, and, and I guess I was going for the anti iconic approach. So, <laughs> we, but it's one of those things where you could sort of say, see, this is the secret history, you know, and there's a conspiracy, you know, but maybe this didn't actually happen. Maybe it's all a dream. <laughs> it's uh, it's no prize worthy. <laughs> yeah, definitely no prize worthy. <laughs> and yours is in the mail. <laughs> yes, I've always wanted one. <laughs> well, now you won't have one. So <laughs> I always love no prizes. I actually got one once. Did you? you know, really? They actually, yeah, they sent out. You know, they sent out these little envelopes with no prize in them. You know, it was like it, you'd get this. You'd get this uh, envelope from Marvel, and it had you know the the drawing of the Hulk on it. I think it was and. Uh, a big announcement. Here's here's your no prize, and you open it up, and there's nothing in it. <laughs> <laughs> Love it, um, Jerry. At the end of, I mean, we 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 obviously touched on Mary Jane earlier, but you know the 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 scene. It's one of my favorite scenes with the character, and might even be my favorite scene in, in Amazing Spider-Man 122. The that that epilogue with yeah. Mary Jane coming. So. I mean, I guess the first question is, I mean, was was there any bit of, you know, caution in terms of hypothetically setting Peter in this in the, you know, in the same setting as a, as a prior romantic interest and, you know, in the same storyline where his current girlfriend died? I mean, was that did you have any caution? But I mean, was that also like your your clear signal that this is the direction that you wanted the character to go romantically? Well, I wanted I, I wanted to accomplish a couple of things. I mean, uh, and we actually that 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 sequence was redrawn because the way that uh, that Gill had done it uh, wasn't didn't provide the same sort of closure that I think it, it provides now. So John Romita redrew the last two or three panels. Uh, I, I I didn't want us to leave this storyline with no hope for Peter, you know, that, that, that he was obviously, uh, devastated and destroyed emotionally. Uh, and so were the readers, you know, going to be devastated and destroyed emotionally by this story. But I didn't want to leave it at that, you know, where there is no sense that, uh, uh, life will not go on in some way. But I also didn't want it to feel like, uh, he's going to pick things up and everything's going to be happy and he's going to be right back into a relationship with another girl. I wanted it to feel like she's his friend first here, you know, that, that he needs somebody who's going to be able to accept his pain at this moment, you know, a, someone who's going to be able to hear him and not walk away from him while he's at, at this lowest point of his life. And that's what that was. I was trying to communicate with that, but also at the same time, you know, give us a sense that, you know, that she's uh, available to him as a potential, uh, you know, future romantic interest, uh, but, it, but without crossing that line. You know, I mean, it was a very, very delicate line to sort of <laughs> to be on, and so there's no sense that. They're going to kiss and embrace and all of that. You know, it's it's uh, she's going to be there for him, uh, you know, while he's uh, in his in his pain. Uh, and I think that was really all. That's why the door closes, you know, on the two of them. Uh, so they can have that private 
private stays. Yeah, I mean, that's just to me. That's always just a scene where she she totally evolves into a. Yeah, she grows up. Yeah, she grows up, and that and that on that two pages, that's where she makes her choice of who she's going to be. So I I was really happy with that too. (laughs) How do you feel about their eventual marriage? I thought it was a disastrous mistake. <laughs> I, 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 I've said this, you know, in other contexts, and, and it, it doesn't – it probably marks me out, you know, as, as a bit of a, a conservative. I don't mean politically conservative, but, but, but culturally conservative. I, I tend to think that there are reasons why characters are iconic and um, that they represent they, – they represent – certain moments uh in our development as human beings you know like and they speak to us during those moments in our development as human beings and and spider-man in my mind i mean if 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 i were be a a complete perfectionist i would never have had him graduate from high school but beyond that he is a young man in my view he's a young man struggling on the uh, on the cusp of adulthood coming to terms with uh, the power, uh, the responsibilities of adult power. I mean, that's the metaphor, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. Uh, Spider-Man is somebody who, like every adolescent, is subtly empowered, you know, as uh, he gains adult powers. You know, he gains adult authority, but he's not an adult. (laughs) He's a kid. Uh, And he's trying to figure it out. And that's why he's such a great iconic character, right? You know, that that, uh, he's trying to make sense of this this new power that he has uh, while still dealing with all the consequences of of adolescent insecurity and and childhood uh, uh, uncertainty. So he's the cusp character. He's a character who's on the cusp of things. Um, and that's why, you know, the Spider-Man movies are about him as a teenager, you know, moving towards adulthood. They're not about him as a young adult uh, dealing with uh, job issues and, you know, uh, whether he's going to get a degree or not get a degree. I mean, none of that. You know, that's not what they're about. They're about the icon, which is Peter Parker, young kid learning to be be a grown-up. So given that, marriage for for a character like Peter Parker is crossing the threshold into adulthood. It's now you're an adult. Act like one. You know, it's like how you're grown up. You know, you've gotten married. You're an adult. You have uh, adult responsibilities. Put away your childish things. uh, Stop being a kid. So it changes the character, and it becomes less interesting. He's not Spider-Man anymore, in my view. He's not uh, Peter Parker on the cusp. He's over the, he's over the edge. You know, he's, he's in the adult world. So, as I say, it's kind of this culturally conservative attitude that I have that uh, we as readers come to different characters at crucial moments in our lives uh, when they speak to us. And that's where those characters belong, you know, at that crucial moment. Problem that comic book readers have and the comic book writers have is that we keep reading the damn things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we read them as we get older and our life changes and our life needs change. And now we want 
to be spoken to at this new stage of our lives. But rather than look for new characters or new Voices that will speak to us, we want our old characters to become relevant to us in our new stage of life. And by doing so, we wrench them out of the area where they belong and bring them into an area where they may not belong. The result is that we're cheating the the reader who might discover those characters at the crucial moment in their lives when they need to to read them. Uh, and we're sort of distorting and adulterating these characters into something that they're not uh, by making them relevant to our middle-aged lives uh, or our late adult, you know, our late young adult lives or whatever it is. Uh, so I'm, I, I, in that sense, I, I think all these characters should be magically frozen in time <laughs> uh, and kept where they belong, you know, and, 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 and Peter Pan shouldn't grow up, you know, uh, I'm not saying that there, that we don't, we might not want to have him grow up or there might not be a, a relevant place to do a story where Peter Pan grows up. But in terms of the iconic character, to me, Miles Morales is more Peter Parker today than Peter Parker was before Doc Ock <laughs> took over his body. <laughs> so I, I have more fun as a not I won't say more fun because I really, really like what Dan Slott is doing with Spider-Man. I'm just saying that the Peter Parker that I read and wanted to read as a kid uh, is the Miles Morales of uh, Ultimate Spider-Man. And that's where that character is today. And I'm assuming in the same vein you liked Ultimate Peter Parker too, probably, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think, th- and I understand publishing, you know, has to deal with the reality of the of the of the business, which is that our readership got older. Uh, but I think we we really endanger ourselves as as uh, creators when we when we distort these characters into things that they're not, just because we're bored with you know, the way that they were. Uh, does that make sense? I mean, I'm not like... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, to, to use your analogy uh, about freezing these, these characters, now that Peter Parker has been defrosted, do you think he can be refrozen? Oh, you mean back to the way he was as a, as a teenager? No. No, I mean, he's... Uh, I mean, the, the, for better or worse, the, the Spider-Man book is about, is about a, a young adult named Peter Parker. Uh, and that's fine. You know, I mean, it's, it's obviously at this point, you know, that that's, he's been that longer than he was the, the teenage Peter Parker, but I think it's fascinating. Don't you think it's fascinating that when they do the movie versions, which are designed to appeal to millions and millions of people, they choose the teenage version. Yeah. Uh, always. Yeah. Well, that's it's my favorite like you... ultimate Peter Parker's my favorite character. So yeah. Yeah. Well, good. We're on the same page. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, kind of, kind of related, but not. I mean, in terms of dealing with you know moments frozen in time and and whatnot, you know, when when you know, especially with the with the storylines we're talking about right now, um, two 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 major retcons that you know related to your stories kind of jump out. I'm just curious what your thoughts are. The fact that Norman Osborn is you know has been back for you know over 20 years now. And then, of course, there's that 
Norman Osborn slept with Gwen Stacy storyline. <laughs> that you, never I mean, happened. I would say, that never happened. I mean, did you read those? I mean, what are your thoughts no. on like when when, when well, something like that? I mean, I know that retcons are part of comics, but I mean, like, do do you feel that some are more well, rec- acceptable than others? <laughs> yeah, I think I think I think Norman Osborn being back is probably acceptable because it doesn't change the original story. I mean, in, in the sense that. Uh, uh, you know, she still died. He, he still killed her. They figured out other ways around that. You know, that's fine. But a retcon that goes against what you know about a character's uh, personality and uh, the, 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 the history of a character, to my mind, is not a retcon. It's, it's, it's just nonsense you know i mean it's uh, i didn't read those that, that story i mean i haven't followed comics as deeply as i mean i, I sort of follow them on and off on and off and i get involved in individual storylines and you know follow them for a year or two and then go away and then come back you know that sort of thing so i missed i missed the uh the gwen stacy norman osborne affair uh, and I'm glad I did because I would probably would have just thrown it against the wall. <laughs> there, there, there is a famous. I don't know if you if you remember these, uh, but Julie Schwartz did did a couple of stories that. I mean, Julie Julie had this tendency to want to explain everything. You know, he wanted to explain any everything that that happened, and he ended up working with uh, a couple of writers who also had that similar obsession. I wasn't one of them, but every once in a while he would have that. And uh, he did a story explaining why the Flash became the Flash with the chemicals spilling on him. And, you know, of course, it probably had been bugging him for years, the idea that, oh, my God, a a lightning bolt will will hit a bunch of chemicals and that will turn him into the Flash. I mean, that's nonsense. It couldn't possibly happen that way. So he came up with this story where this kind of weird wizardy type character comes in and makes makes the lightning bolt hit. And it's like... What the fuck was that? You know, it's like, <laughs> and I guarantee at the time that that came out, we were all around DC and we we're like reading the story going, what the hell is this? You know, and Len Wein said, and I, I, I agreed with him instantly, he said, uh, we, we are making a solemn pact. You know, all of us were saying, <laughs> he said, we are making a solemn pact. This story never happened <laughs> it never happened yes you're right and it was a similar one was the uh, the wally cox superman uh uh magic glasses storyline uh where i guess marty pasco uh who's a wonderful and great writer but like me like i said he has this kind of ocd quality of wanting to explain everything uh Apparently, had been obsessing for years over the fact that who on earth could possibly mistake, uh, not recognize Clark Kent was Superman just because he put on a pair of glasses. There had to be another explanation. What could that explanation possibly be? Well, apparently, according to Marty, uh, remember these these glasses that Clark wears have to have been made out of Kryptonian glass because Superman's X-ray vision goes through them and otherwise would have melted them, right? So apparently, without knowing it, since he started wearing the glasses, Superman has been hypnotically using hypnovision through his glasses to hypnotize everybody into thinking that Clark Kent looks like Wally Cox. 
<laughs> there is an actual story. There's an actual Superman story where this premise is is explicated, and this is also why it it, it, it works because it's he can do it through TV. Uh, so whenever <laughs> Clark Kent would appear on TV or in a camera picture or anywhere, he was hypnotizing people who looked at the picture. I swear to God, this story happened. That's. Uh, that's almost as good as his, like, uh, rainbow finger lasers. Right. You know, so we just said, no, that never happened. <laughs> so my attitude about Norman Osborn sleeping with Gwen Stacy and giving birth to whoever it was he gave birth to, that never happened. <laughs> it never happened. Well, it also I, just, I mean, I mean, if you, if you do have to, if you do end up accepting it as continuity, I mean, it, it just changes no. the dynamic. <laughs> right. It, but it just changes everything about that story that you wrote in terms of absolutely and, and it like it's just like why go there that's always my yeah i mean it's, it's like it, first of all it's 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 a useless addition because it gains you nothing right right i mean what does it gain you that uh, that gwen was a was seduced by i mean it's like horrible I mean, it's like, <laughs> it's, it's like uh, either because I, I have never read the story and i, I will never read the story so yeah. i don't want to you don't you know, have but to. i mean either <laughs> Either she's a horrible person for not telling Peter, or she didn't know, in which case she's a, a victim, which makes her even more pathetic, or Norman Osborn did something to her to make it happen. I mean, it's like no matter where you go in it, it's ugly. <laughs> There's just nothing good about it. And so, yeah, it makes Norman Osborn even more horrible. But throwing off a bridge wasn't horrible enough? <laughs> like, <laughs> What's your standard here? <laughs> well, let, let's let's transition to st the stories that that have branched off things that you did that are more uh, highly regarded. Um, you know, we, we we spoke to uh, J.M. Demetrius uh, months ago, and we were asking him about his um, uh, Spider-Man, Harry Osborn, you know, Child Within, and then the Death of Harry story, and you know he. He credited what what you and Ross did on on your issues with Harry is kind of like laying the foundation for this, you know, really kind of emotional and psychological dynamic between the two characters. I mean, yeah. what, what, what I mean, what what were you going for when when you made Harry the Goblin? I mean, just beyond the shock value of it. I mean, what what were you thinking about in terms of trying to pit two best friends against each other? Well. Relationships are complicated. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> happens uh, all the time. Yeah, I, well, I, I've I've had roommates, you know, and <laughs> actually, Len Wein, Len Wein and I were roommates at one point. So, uh, I, I think there's this kind of a love hate relationship that you have with your best friends. You know, I mean that these are people who are very close to you, but they're also, in a sense, very threatening uh, because they know you. You know, they know how to hurt you in ways that uh, uh, somebody else doesn't know. Uh, so a best friend is somebody that you, that, you, that you value both because they're there for you and because they don't use what they know against you. <laughs> you know? So it's like uh, it's a complicated thing. And I, I, I guess on some level I wanted to, to – uh, use that as a metaphor, you know, with, uh, in the background for, for Peter and Harry's uh, relationship. Um, plus there was this, this, I always felt there was this kind of dynamic between them, uh, of this kind of unequal f 
relationship, friendship, where there had to be a kind of um, uh, jealousy uh, that each of them felt for the other, you know, because on the one hand, you know, Peter does end up with Mary Jane, who was originally, uh, was Gwen originally with, I mean, it's like they went back and forth. They did the Betty and Veronica thing back and forth with those, with those women. Uh, so there was a certain, you know, potential, uh, jealousy in that regard. But there was also this kind of jealousy, uh, in that, Harry comes from money. Harry comes from wealth. Peter doesn't. So in a way, both of them envy the other, you know, that, that Peter obviously could envy Harry for, for his wealth, uh, and his social class and, you know, the ease of his life, you know, financially, but Harry also envies Peter for Peter's freedom from responsibility, ironically, you know, a family responsibility of, of having to live up to the father's expectations, you know? Uh, so there's a kind of an interesting dynamic there. Uh, and I just liked the idea of, uh, you know, my, my, my best friend, my, my, my worst enemy, um, you know, this as a, as a dynamic, especially since Harry, you know, would have this kind of psychotic break where I could go back and forth, you know, <laughs> he could be his friend and not his friend, friend and not his friend, you know, back and forth. <laughs> so that was kind of fun. Um, I just, I just found it as a, as a potentially, a potential gold mine for, for, for stories. And there's this other aspect too, that, that, uh, villains in my mind are always at their best when they have complicated emotional uh, history, uh, where you can feel some empathy and sympathy for them. And, and certainly I think you could feel that for Harry. Yeah, without question. And, and I mean, I think you were working on web of Spider-Man when JMD did that spectacular story. Right. Um, mm -hmm. so, I mean, we're, I mean, did he, did you two confer with each other at all? Yeah. When he was working on that. He just did his thing and not, not really. I mean, we were, I, I was sort of, there was a sort of compartmentalized. I one of one of the things that I'd, I'd asked uh, uh, Jim Salakrup when I came back uh, to writing Spider-Man was how much we were going to try to um, uh, interweave the, the the three titles, you know, uh, spectacular. I mean, a spectacular web and and amazing. And uh, I was going to be doing two of the titles, so you know. I recognized that they were the subordinate titles and, and uh, that all of the main storylines were going to be played out in amazing. So I was going to basically have the secondary supporting cast to deal with, which is why I did the whole storylines with Robbie Robertson and uh, Tombstone and J. Jonah Jameson and, and so on, because I couldn't really do stories that would affect uh, uh, the main you know, relationships of Peter and, uh, and Mary Jane and Aunt May and, and so on. Uh, so I didn't really, I didn't really confer with Dematis about it. Uh, but I was happy with what he did because it, it's, it seemed like a great, you know, a, a great thematic, uh, 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 fulfillment, you know, of, the, of that, that story. Yeah. Without question. And, and, you know, just as a total aside, not related, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the um, the Robbie, the Joe Robbie uh, 
and Tombstone story because that's that's one of my favorites, and that's, that's a story that a lot of fans always come back to in terms of like you know underrated, un, un you know uh, unheralded yeah. stories. I mean, are, are there any other from that web of run that you're particularly proud of? Uh, I, it was an odd run. I mean, it was not just web; it was uh, spectacular. And I tried to weave the two of them together the way that what I was trying to do with that was what I had done when I was writing Batman and detective comics at uh, DC. I I actually had the opportunity to write um, what amounted to a biweekly Batman uh, series because I was writing both Batman and detective. And I would do the stories so that they would dovetail into each other, you know, and that, that was kind of what I was trying to do with, um, uh, spectacular and uh, web, you know, is to try to create storylines that that I could keep going between the two the two books. So I don't, with the exception of the the Robbie Robertson storyline, I don't have a storyline that I, I uh, specifically think of as an arc in that. It's more like the interweaving of the stories uh, that I was happiest about. You know, that I could you know pick up on a on a character beat, you know, from one issue and then fulfill it, you know, in a, in a, in a completely different book, <laughs> <laughs> thereby forcing readers hopefully to buy both. <laughs> do you well, have, do you have a, like a character that you invented in, in your time on like amazing or like a villain that you invented that you're particularly fond of? I mean, I know everybody probably always asked you about the Gwen story, but like, like, is there one that stands out to you personally? Oh yeah. Well, I mean, I, I I'm a big fan of. I, yes, there are characters. I, I obviously the Punisher. You know, I mean, without it goes without saying. But uh, I like that. I mean, I'm 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 I enjoy the Jackal. I hope that that they'll find a place for him in the Amazing Spider-Man movies. Um, and I think they might because I think Miles Warren is being uh, is referenced in some of the. Uh, 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 you know the, the 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 viral stuff that they're doing to promote uh, the Amazing Spider-Man, or like the Tumblr, or yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's there's some reference to Miles Warren and some and some of that somewhere. You know, Professor Miles Warren at Empire State University. You know, <laughs> uh, so that that would be kind of cool. Uh, I liked uh, the Tarantula was one of my favorite uh, creations from that period. Uh, the idea of a, uh, a bad Captain America, basically, I thought that was kind of kind of cool. Uh, you know, I, I had a handful of characters that I I got to work on. Tombstone, obviously, another great character that I was happy with. Hammerhead, uh, you know, there were there were a bunch of them. For some reason, Spider Man and Firestorm, as uh, books both gave me the opportunity to create some really cool rogues gallery type villains uh, and uh, some not so cool. You know, I mean, there are some that are completely forgettable, you know, but I did have did have a few that I was happy with. Um, Jerry, I know we've, we've taken a lot of your time here, so but if, if we can kind of end things with uh, a really all-encompassing question. I mean, you, you obviously have a, a real good sense of humor about what, what you've written. I mean, do you, when, when, when people do talk about, you know, you know, the death of one and that, that whole era of books being like, you know, the end of the silver age, the end of innocence, <laughs> do you, I mean, do you feel at this point, do you embrace it? Do you, do you deflect it? Do you, can you wrap your no, head around yeah. it or, or what's, what's, yeah. I absolutely, I absolutely embrace it. I mean, one of the one of the 
I, I feel really privileged, first of all, that I that I was part of uh, uh, a, a terrific era in comics. Uh, you know, the Silver Age and the transition into the Bronze Age. Uh, I, I, you know, I can't I can't express how you know lucky I I feel for for that. Uh, and you know, if I had planned it. I could take some some pride and credit, you know, in making that transition from the Silver Age into the Bronze Age. I mean, you know, the growing up of comics or whatever. But that was something that was that was recognized well after the fact. And to me, it's it's a wonderful irony because, on a personal level, it was very painful at the time. I got a lot of hate, as I said. Uh, I, I I used to joke, you know, that I was the most hated man in comics, and for a while I was kind of, you know, seriously hated by people. Um, but now, you know, as you say, you know, I'm sort of this legendary figure, and it's kind of funny <laughs> to me that 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 the stuff stuff that I was uh, beaten up for in the past, you know, becomes uh, material that's considered, if not. If not because of the quality of the writing, because I can't say that the quality of the writing is any better than or worse than anybody else's, but for the historical significance that it had is kind of remembered. That's kind of cool, you know. I mean, that that to me is uh, it's a great privilege, you know, and and I'm I'm really happy uh, to have that in my resume, <laughs> as it were. Uh, you know, when I when I write up my bios for conventions, you know, that I always put down, you know, the man who killed Gwen Stacy. Uh, because, in fact, if I ever write a memoir, I'll probably call that that my memoir, uh, just because that's the thing that I did. You know that that for whatever re- for for good or ill was a defining moment of my kind of a career, at least at that stage of my my uh, uh, my life. So. You know, I peaked early. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> it's all been downhill for the last 40 years. You know, but, but what a peak. <laughs> well, it was a, it's pretty cool. I mean, it's cool to look back at it and to recognize it for what it was. But I guarantee none of us thought that's what we were doing. And we were just trying to tell a good story and keep the readers interested and uh, do the kind of thing that, that seemed like the right thing to do at the time. Yeah, it seemed like a good idea at the time, and it turned out we were right. So, <laughs> <laughs> history history has proven you're right. Well, 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 Dan, do you have anything else you want to throw in there? Or um... no, I think that's a good place to end this. Yeah, well, well, well Jerry, th- thanks again so much for for doing this. We really do appreciate it. I, you know, and I'm sure our fans are gonna really love listening to this. I mean, I yeah, this was definitely as comprehensive as it gets in terms of you know all the ins and outs and i know you've been at you've been probably answering a lot of these questions you know ad nauseum so you know we, we appreciate you going one more round with 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 a couple of fans here while we're doing it it's always a pleasure So thanks again to, to Jerry for, for coming on this show, Dan. That was that was some interview, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how we could top that. Let's get Stan on, right? No. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's our challenge. That's our next challenge. <laughs> well, Dan, where else can we find uh, our Superior Spire Talk podcast? 
Well, you can always find them at superiorspidertalk.com or on iTunes by searching Superior Spider Talk. And if you do, we'd really like you guys to leave us a rating and a comment to let us know how we're doing, how we can improve possibly, or what you do like what that we're doing. And, of course, we're always going to read it on the air. And if you have any opinions on these comics discussed today or questions maybe for future guests, uh, please email them to us at superiorspidertalk at gmail.com. And we will address and read those on the air as well. Yes, and please be sure to check our Facebook page at facebook.com slash superiorspidertalk because it's a great place to keep up with us in between shows as we post articles that we've written, other breaking news about the Spider-Man universe, how to get in touch with us, what comics we might be talking about, classic and current on our podcast. Go to Facebook. That's where you'll find all that info. Of course. And uh, Mark, where can we find all the info about you on the Internet this week? Oh, well, this week? No, uh, you can, of course, find me every day at www.chasingamazingblog.com, where we're in the midst of our top ten Green Goblin storyline countdown. Probably some of these Jerry Conway stories that we talked about today might be figuring into that countdown very soon, don't yeah, you think, Dan? Probably. <laughs> just probably. <laughs> and additionally, you can find me uh, on Twitter at ChasingASMblog, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash ChasingAmazing. And uh, you can find my weekly column about 90s comics gimmick or good at Comics Should Be Good at Comic Book Resources. And uh, you can find all my writings on Spider-Man at SuperiorSpiderTalk.com or follow us on Twitter at SupSpiderTalk. You can find everything about me at DanGavazdan.com or by following me on Twitter at, at DanGavazdan. And if you're really interested in more things that I do, you can check out my movie reviews at GrindMyReels.com or my weekly uh, writings for the magazine What Weekly at WhatWeekly.com. Sounds like a lot, Dan. I think you, you officially now have more dot-coms and posts than I do on the internet. And I officially have way less hair than you. <laughs> well, Dan, um, you know, I, I don't know if we have a good Uncle Ben story. Uh, you know, maybe maybe something about a woman getting thrown off a bridge and her neck snapping. But um, I don't know. Either way, let's just remember that with great podcasts must also come superior spider talk. Snap. <laughs>